Mike. Lauren. Mike, how do you feel when you see an autonomous vehicle on the road? Because we're seeing a lot of them these days around where we live in San Francisco. Are you excited? Do you feel trepidation? I feel low-grade anxiety. Um, I'm usually on my bike, so I give them a very wide berth. I don't Mm -hmm. exactly trust them yet. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I see people texting or Snapchatting while they're driving, and I'm like, yeah, let's just bring on the autonomous vehicles. But I'm also curious... Like, how soon that's a reality? Oh, uh, a decade, at least. (laughs) People love driving their cars. It's going to take a while. Well, we might get a little more clarity on this from our guests on the podcast today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. And I'm Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. And today we're also joined by Wired staff writer Ariane Marshall. Hey, Ariane. Hello. It's been a while, and it's great to have you back on. So nice to be here. So today we're talking about self-driving cars or autonomous vehicles. Now, Ariane, you cover all elements of transportation for us here at Wired. And recently during CES, the big annual Consumer Electronics Fest, you spoke with Jody Kelman the head of Lyft's Autonomous Driving Division. And you also spoke with Aubrey Donnellan, who is a co-founder and the chief operating officer at Bear Flag Robotics. A lot of people have probably heard of Lyft, maybe not so much Bear Flag, but what you should know about Bear Flag Robotics is that they are now owned by John Deere. So both of them painted pretty rosy pictures of how autonomous vehicles could change everything from cities to farming operations. But actually implementing this tech is complicated, as we've reported a bunch on Wired. They also talked a bit about how they initially envisioned certain use cases for their AV tech, and it ended up being deployed in different ways, which I think is something we're sort of grappling with more broadly in technology. Ariane, before we go to the interview itself, first tell us a little bit about how these two companies are approaching autonomous transportation and the different markets they serve. Yeah, so so the companies are pretty different and serve pretty different markets. Um, Lyft is an interesting case because they actually had their own team of engineers in Palo Alto working on self-driving technology. And then last year, they sold that part of the business to Toyota. So now all they do in terms of autonomous vehicles is partner with other companies who are building the technology to deploy the uh, technology eventually on their ride hailing network. Um, So uh, folks like Jody over there are dealing with kind of product questions about who's going to use autonomous vehicles, how are they going to want to use them, um, are there going to be certain likes and dislikes, sort of the marketing questions around AVs. And then folks like uh, folks over at Bear Flag Robotics are dealing with, uh, you know, very different people. They're dealing with farmers, they're dealing with ag workers. Um, and in those sorts of contexts and in lots of uh, industry contexts, uh, manufacturing, um, things that have to do with factories, AVs are actually out and about already doing sort of little tasks, uh, tasks that are routinized, um, that don't require the sort of complex thinking that driving a car does. Um, so uh, John Deere actually at CES unveiled a new uh, tractor that has lots of more autonomous capabilities and it can do a lot in the fields right now. 
Uh, yeah, another Wired contributor, Will Knight, wrote a story about that tractor. Uh, did you talk about it in this interview that we're going to hear? We we did a little bit. We didn't really get into the specifics. Something that Will touched on that we don't touch on uh, in, in this conversation you'll hear is uh, sort of issues over right to repair and uh, farm equipment, which is not something I report on about, but is so critical um, in these questions about this technology that's coming out um, and at, you know, who's going to control who gets to change that technology, kind of make it more suitable for the people who own it for their needs? Um, is that something they're going to get to do? Is the company going to totally retain the ability to do that? Um, so it, it's sort of big, interesting philosophical questions that uh, will continue to swirl around products like that new John Deere tractor. Ariane, with the cars that we see driving around here in the San Francisco Bay Area, the ones that are eventually supposed to transport us humans and not, you know, autonomously like kind of roll over soil and help farmers, people discuss the levels of autonomous driving quite a bit, right? Um, there's like a certain threshold, you know, level four at which the car becomes a little more sentient. How close are we really to widespread level four or level five autonomous driving? I'd say it totally depends where you are. Um, so there are going to be some places in California, maybe even San Francisco, for example, where companies like Cruise, which is owned by General Motors, and Waymo, which is a Google Alphabet spinoff, um, uh, where they're testing all the time um, and trying to figure out this very complicated uh, driving task in a, in a complicated place. But California is nice because the weather is nice. Um, regulators have created processes that allow um, uh, people to develop their technology and kind of go through these rubber stamp uh, processes that, that make the people feel a bit safer about getting into them maybe. Um, so it could be that we see autonomy in, in that kind of place before we see it in New York City, where there's less testing happening, um, and in particular geographies and things like that. That said, uh, the kind of quote-unquote highest level of autonomy, which is level five, that's where the car does everything in all contexts. Um, I think it's pretty clear at this point when you talk to people that are building this technology and experts that that's really never going to happen. You're never going to be able to get into a car that can drive everywhere at any time in snow, in hurricanes, in cities, um, in different countries. Um, so it's it's going to be a bit more complicated uh, than sort of their big futuristic dreams, but it's uh, interesting to watch play out. All right, Ariane, thanks so much for that overview. Let's go listen to your interview. Hi everyone, I'm Ariane Marshall and I am a staff writer at Wired. In a moment, I'll be joined virtually by Aubrey Donnellan and Jody Kelman. Aubrey is the co-founder and CEO of Bear Flag Robotics, which is a John Deere company. And Jody is the head of Lyft Autonomous, uh, which means she leads the consumer and marketplace products at Lyft. Thank you both so much for being here. Awesome to be here. Um, I, I wanted to start off by um, first pointing out that you both are operating um, and helping oversee autonomous products in uh, very different contexts, but you're also some of the, the few companies that have really seen real world deployment of automated vehicles. And I, I'm wondering, um, Aubrey, you can, you can start this off, what, what kind of the most surprising thing has been having real people, uh, you know, uh, use your automated products? 
you know, when, when we started Bear Flag Robotics, we talked to so many different growers about what their pain points were, how automation and autonomy could affect their businesses and their lives in fundamental ways. So we, we had a hunch as to the impact um, that having real world machines out there working in live operations would have for these people um, and business owners. But it really wasn't until, you know, we, we did get out there um, and start providing these services for many different growers of different types, different seasons, and really start to see that the value proposition for them went way beyond what we thought, which was addressing a labor shortage issue. Um, in agriculture. And while it, while it is a very prescient pain point, we started to see how growers became really innovative when you give them this technology and all of the other things, how they're utilizing the data um, and, and the precision nature of the technology to actually farm better um, than they could before, aside from the pain point that they all thought we were solving up front. Oh, that's interesting. So, so people have been sort of uh, interacting with it a little more differently than you had anticipated. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, people really get creative um, when when you give them technology that lets them do things they've never been able to do before. But sometimes it's hard for I think customers um, to to elucidate those those use cases until you actually put a product in their hands that can show them value of some sort. And until, you know, they're using it day to day and it actually is solving a problem of theirs. And then that kind of what we saw was that freed them up to get more creative with the additional value that that automation and autonomy could bring them just beyond like you don't need a driver in the cab of a tractor for us. Jody, I'm wondering um, what what Lyft has learned. I think I was looking back and you all have been working with Emotional on um, you know autonomous deployments. I think since 2018. What what are some of the the big surprising things that you've learned about how people are interacting with with robo taxis, uh, particularly in Las Vegas, which I know is where we're supposed to be. Yes. So so first off, stepping back for for a moment. I mean, I, I think one of the first surprises for people is that they can do this in the Lyft app today. So you know, if you're a Lyft rider, you can open up your Lyft app. Uh, in Las Vegas with Motional and in Phoenix with Waymo, or uh, most recently we actually launched right right before the holidays with uh, Argo and Ford in South Beach, Miami. And you know, this looks like any other mode of transportation in the Lyft app. So the same way you might request a Lyft Classic ride or a bike or scooter through Lyft, you can now request self-driving rides through the Lyft app. Uh, and I think that's really, when we think about sort of our role in how we bring this technology to market, we really see this sort of Lyft playing this foundational role in, in almost the trust equation for a, a rider. So if you're thinking about self-driving as this kind of far away technology that, that maybe is going to exist 20 or 30 years from now, what we're really helping you do is see what it's like today as a real form of transportation. Uh, and we've done, you know, over well over 100,000 rides uh, with our partners in you know, paid rides in self-driving cars through the Lyft app today. So, you know, I think the, the first big surprising thing is frankly just that this is here and it's now. Uh, I think the second big thing we see that that is incredibly, so I would say counterintuitive is that that consumers are really ready 
for this technology i think you know we we have something like a four point nine seven out of five star rating on on the self driving rides we've done to date and we see that ninety six percent of people want to ride again and so very far from kind of this being something that scares people which i think is often how this storyline is portrayed what we see is there's really an energy for this new technology that is going to be safer that's going to be more affordable and that's going to provide even better experiences than we're able to get through any form of transportation today do you find that there's a particular reaction that uh, people have when that self-driving car it's still i should note with with someone in it uh, monitoring yes. it um the, you know anything they say in particular when that actually happens to them so i have have now done like I would guess I'm up in the actual hundreds of rides where I've accompanied people on their first self-driving ride, which is, I would say, sort of the single biggest perk of my uh, my job. Uh, and the most common pattern I see is that at the very beginning, sort of people people are they're nervous when they get into the car. They don't totally trust what the car is going to do. They're kind of staring at the wheel. They're they're watching the safety driver's hands kind of hover under the wheel and making sure the car is doing what they expect. And it, you know, it depends on on the length of time, but I'd say it usually takes sort of somewhere between three and five minutes for someone to totally forget that they are in a self-driving car. And so I think we've, we've done a fair amount of kind of research on this. We do both pre-research pre and post-research on the rides. And the single biggest piece of feedback people give us after the rides is that it was boring. And that is kind of, as, as someone who is trying to be part of bringing what I think is going to be a game-changing technology to market, you know, usually what I want to be doing is bringing something that's like incredibly interesting to market. In this case, I love that boring is our baseline and that we are able to build from there. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then come back with more of Ariane's interview about the future of autonomous driving. Agriculture and different industry like that has been using automation for some time. And I wonder if there's anything you can take away from the experiences of folks like Audrey, folks like Bear Flag Robotics um, in you know, creating products for in a very different context, but that still use kind of similar technology. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest takeaways for all of us, and I think you started to touch on this with, with Aubrey, is the idea that the faster you can get sort of your end customer engaged with the technology, the better you will build towards their needs today. So, you know, I'll give you a very tactical example from our world. So, you know, you mentioned we started this with Motional in, in 2018. We actually did our, our very first pilot with, with uh, Motional's predecessor, Newtonomy, in, in Boston in 2017. And when we started these programs, you know, the big thing we thought riders were going lift riders were going to need from us was really a focus on safety so we thought you know all of our product designs and sort of product suite was built to make sure they really trusted what the car was doing and when we got into the field with these riders and we did ride-alongs and we did interviews and we did surveys with them 
we just asked them sort of what they were experiencing, what we realized is actually that the biggest thing for them is a baseline of familiarity. So if you think about kind of like a, almost a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, we tend to think safety is foundational to everything we do. And before you sort of meet other needs, you have to, to establish that safety foundation. But there's almost this underlying, I, I'd call it like pattern recognition that people don't want to deal with a lot of cognitive load when they're trying something new. So the idea of being able to like use, for instance, you know, a familiar lift app to open the door of a car or to be able to adjust the temperature or uh, the you know entertainment in a car, being able to build on those familiar patterns turned out to be even more foundational than sort of explicitly addressing that, you know, that, that potential of how do I know what the car is seeing, doing, and thinking? Same question for you, Aubrey. Is there anything, and I'm wondering particularly for you from a kind of technical standpoint, whether there's um, anything for uh, you know, a product in agriculture context to learn from you know, what's going on on America's roads right now and the kind of testing that's going on for kind of personal automobiles. Oh, 100%, 100% we can learn so much from each other. But even even before that, Jody, what, what you're saying resonates so much um, in agriculture in, in different ways. Like we, at John Deere, we talk a lot about how autonomy is so much more for us uh, than getting from point A to point B. It's not, you know, you can take the person out of the cab so that your system can navigate autonomously, but that's not gonna get your farm farmed, your job done. Um, in farming, you have all sorts of types of equipment that operate in different times of the year for different tasks. And that equipment is really complex. It's super cool to work on, but it requires, there's like a pretty heavy cognitive load and you need a skilled operator, which is part of the problem with our labor shortage is you really do need skilled operators in the cabs of these vehicles to be monitoring what is going on, not only in front of the vehicle, but behind the vehicle, what's going on on some of your sensor feedback screens um, that, you know, are the control systems within the vehicle that are interacting with the crop. Not to mention the environment is really rugged and can be very tough on the human body. You know, we have, we have people in UI, UX, ergonomics. I mean, if you've ever been in a tractor before and you're sitting in a tractor for eight hours, it is so tough on just your physical body. Um, not to mention all of the, you know, the mental activities that you need to do. So point being, I really, I, I think there's a lot of synergies in, in what you experience with Lyft in that automation of these smaller, you know, less grandiose tasks that humans have to do and they're not even always aware of can be just as meaningful if not even more meaningful than the automation of the driving itself and that's something i feel really grateful to be working at john deere now you know we're part of john deere they are a market leader in this precision ag space and they've been working on their approach has been automation of these lower level tasks that a human does in the cab to make their drivers and their growers more productive, more profitable, their machines more efficient, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all to build to this place where we can take the humans out of the cab, we can run day and night, 24 seven, 
we can scale up or down operations, you know, at the drop of a hat without human resources. And but you need all of these lower level things to kind of be in place in addition to safety. <laughs> Number one, you cannot hurt or harm anyone. Um, but you know that that is a huge piece of this. And I think even though the tasks that we automate in agriculture are completely irrelevant to what you work on at Lyft, um, I think that still holds true is to not overlook those things. What you're touching on, I think that the companies that are doing this, that are worth their salt, uh, kind of ironically put the human at the center of their robotic innovation, right? We are all thinking about what the end impact is rather than thinking about sort of the technology as an end to itself. And I think that's really one of the, the dividing lines you're starting to see in the marketplace is really, you know, company uh, autonomy companies that are designing with the end user in mind versus those that are kind of they're still excited about the problem they're maybe pushing forward on some piece of the technical innovation but i think over time you'll see the companies that put put the end user first and kind of winning the autonomy race i really do think we can all learn from each other and leverage technology in infrastructure in safety how we approach safety in scenarios um and how we do heavy duty data capture, data processing, over the air updates to a global fleet. I think that's something that all of all of us have in common and our challenges that aren't necessarily our core competency. Um, and we could, you know, there, there's other there's other companies in the ecosystem that we can leverage, but I, I do feel personally it's, you know, we can come together and, and help each other, you know, all ships rise in those infrastructure areas. Um, because it is a pain point, I think, for all of us trying to deploy this this technology at scale. Yeah, Aubrey, I'm wondering if, and Jody too, um, I'm wondering if you feel, you know, aside from Wired HQ, uh, I'm wondering if you think there are places to have those conversations kind of industry-wide across everyone who's working on automation in lots of different contexts. Are there places where you're kind of able to gather and share the important information you need to? I think I think there are great forums out there, especially industry specific. Um, I know in agriculture we we do, but I don't. You know, I, I think we could do better pulling industries together, geos together, um, in having those discussions, especially involving I mean, regulatory I, issues. Yeah, I, I I certainly think there are forums where it's happening. Um, but interestingly, Europe I think is actually leading the way on this. Not, not super surprisingly, sort of they've taken a very collaborative approach to autonomy. Uh, the U.S. is a little more bottom up, but you do see you know, we're we're part of things like the self driving coalition or the you know, uh, AB coalition for for safer streets uh, that are bringing together industry groups to make sure that we are actually sort of building to the same standards. Uh, I also think there's there's really interesting work to be done there or done out there around data. So you see companies like Motional uh, releasing things like the New Scenes data set. Uh, you know, the more that we can build towards these these open data sets or data sets that allow the industry to move faster, the more we are going to be able to to get this technology onto the roads quickly and safely and collectively. Yeah. I, I'm when you were talking before about 
um, uh, the kind of smart companies really thinking about how the end user is is using automation as a product. Um, that got me thinking about the sort of ever present questions about automation and job loss. I know when I talk to people who are out doing jobs every day, that's something that scares them a lot. Um, Jody, how are you uh, thinking about and talking to Lyft drivers about what, uh, you know, the kinds of experiments uh, and deployments you're running with Motional, what that might mean for them in the future? I mean, I, th I think it is, it's critical to sort of state, state out front or that we believe drivers are always going to have, frankly, even more earning opportunities than they do today on the Lyft platform. So you know, today, some, a, a company like Lyft represents less than 1% of vehicle miles traveled uh, on the road. And as we are able to sort of grow everything from you know, serving more communities to reducing the price point at which we're able to offer transportation to our users, you know, we, we do know that there is a lot of room for that pie to grow. Um, but I also think kind of the the piece of this that people talk much less about is kind of the job creation aspect of autonomy. So everything from, you know, we are going to need to open service centers across the country that are cleaning, servicing, maintaining these vehicles. Um, to today, you know, we actually have hired our first uh, customer service representatives who are working with Lyft riders who take uh, a self-driving ride on our platform. So, you know, as we start thinking about what autonomy is going to bring both for, for our country, frankly, uh, and and for Lyft in specific, you know, we, we do see a huge amount of opportunity here, uh, you know, in addition to the change that it's certainly going to bring. Same question for, for you, Aubrey. I'm wondering, um, I'm wondering how you guarantee that you're not just talking to, you know, the, the, the folks who are buying John Deere products and Bear Flag Robotics products, the farmers, but then also the, the agriculture workforce, the, the folks that are doing the day-to-day -day work and how you make sure that, uh, you know, uh, they're not going to lose their jobs, those sorts of concerns. Absolutely. I mean, it, so we have half of our company are agricultural professionals. We would be nowhere close to where we are without the people, those people, and specifically the expertise um, in not only operating equipment, but how to farm and how to reach growers and build products that they actually need, not just what we think that they need. So we've created jobs at Bear Flag <laughs> um, more than there would have been otherwise, but but. You know, in ag, we're experiencing a real labor shortage. Like people are are pretty concerned that you know there's no. I think that it was t told to me recently one percent employment growth from 2019 to 2029 in agriculture, which is less than the the average for all others. It's not great, um, and so and it's an aging workforce. People are concerned that they're not going to be able to meet the growing demand for food, which we all know is exploding globally, um, with the existing human resources that we have. And so it, it, like, it is an existential threat that I think the conversation is totally warranted. And we can talk about, you know, as we take away the need for human drivers, what does that mean for people who want to be in agriculture? And it's actually pretty bright because we're up-leveling people's skills. We're relieving people of 
tough and dangerous jobs that they're able to go use their time to do higher value tasks on the, the farm. But the real and genuine issue is that we're, we're solving a problem in ag and it is a labor shortage problem. Um, and so we're met typically with like gratitude for, for helping people mitigate not only today, but how they forecast this problem in the future for their farms. I think it's kind of, it's as you're talking, Aubrey, it's bringing to mind sort of one of our core technology differences, which is you know, robo-taxis deployed in urban markets, are they're typically a much more complex use case than sort of far, farming along a field. Uh, it's part of why you see a lot of uh, autonomous and roboticists going to ag tech and to trucking, because frankly, robo-taxi technology is hard. And so it, it is also worth stating sort of, we don't see autonomy coming to market on you know, public roads all at once and in a wave, right? This is going to happen in pockets over time in certain cities, in certain weather conditions at certain times of day. And so that's also sort of one of the big roles that, that Lyft will end up playing is, you know, turns out, you know, when you want to get a ride, Arian, like you want to go from point A to point B, you don't want to go from point A to point B 10% of the time when the car is able to service it. And so being able to have a hybrid network of both human drivers and autonomous robo-taxis actually allows us to kind of bring that technology to market that much faster. Which, Jody, you uh, anticipated the the million dollar, probably multi-trillion dollar question that I'm sure you're very sick of, which is uh, when, when are these things going to get here? But also what uh, what does a company like Lyft need to learn bef before they can get here? What are the kind of big open questions um, that, you know, will determine when I can, you know, use my phone and, and dial up my driverless Lyft ride? I think it's a really good news story here, which is we will start rolling out the first driverless cars on Lyft end of 2023 with Motional. So we have, have been quite public about that. We're incredibly excited. It will happen on the streets of Las Vegas. Um, and what I think you will then see is we'll add, again, these sort of small pockets of certain cities at certain times of day when it's not snowing and not raining uh, to bring other partners' technology to the Lyft platform. So you know, what we're going to see is this really starting in earnest next year, um, but with the awareness that you know, this is location dependent, it's not happening all at once. I, I think for us, the single biggest question that we needed to answer has been answered, which is, are customers ready and are there reasonable guidelines out there in the marketplace for us to know what safe enough looks like? And I think one, you know, with partners like the ABSC, uh, we have been part of developing these sort of shared guidelines for what it looks like to roll out an autonomous car safely. And then increasingly, we're, we're really trying to help partner companies understand what it looks like even to compare to something like what safe behavior might look like on a given road segment uh, in San Francisco from a human-powered car. And so increasingly, I think you know, the first question we needed to answer was always, are consumers ready to try this? I think we know the answer to that question. 
and if anything the answer we're getting is is kind of please get them to me sooner and in more places but the safety question has really been one of the gating questions and increasingly again through some of this this intercompany work that we have been doing with safety experts you know from every everyone from Ford Argo and emotional to Waymo we are seeing sort of a standard emerge for what it is going to look like to actually roll out a fully driverless car safely and I think you know that's a place where I never want to be in a world where any company is doing it alone I think that is you know a place where where we want regulatory bodies stepping in we want we want industry consortiums coming together and really setting a standard that everyone needs to hold up to account and so I think that's really one of the areas of innovation that I I've been most excited to see and then excited to play a role within that by by having kind of this very interesting data set that that no one else out there has which is sort of access to how safe do you need to be to actually be safer than a human driver on the road so I'll get excited for innovations and in government regulation that's the fun that's good to know I'll keep that in mind Aubrey I want to ask you the same question which is when you know when can an ag worker kind of just step out of the tractor but I also have a question for Twitter for you that I want to get to which is what is the reaction from farmers who may feel like they're adding more complex systems to their workflow? Or is that there a general openness to new tools in the toolbox? So if you could answer both of those huge questions in yes. 10 minutes, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of when, it's here already. I mean, that's the good news. Is like we've been out in market um, for a couple of years now. Uh, you guys saw a press release from John Deere um, making a really big announcement. Um, company-wide about being in market and you know we growers are going to be using growers are already using our technology they're going to be using it at a larger scale this year um, and just growing from that Um, that's that's the great thing in in agriculture you know there's no there's no lack of opportunity to go tackle with automation and so we you know we're in market today we're just going to be taking more and more down we're starting with tillage then we're going to tackle planting harvesting all the steps in the production system and continue adding value to it for growers um in terms of the the twitter question um you know i think growers are some of the most innovative experimental customers i've ever dealt with um in my career and i haven't always been in agriculture they they know their bottom line better than anybody. So whatever technology you provide them, you you better know your business case and you better know the value that you're providing to them. Um, but in terms of trying new things, I mean, you go on you go on farms and people create new tools and new technology themselves that we've never seen sold by an OEM or a tech company before. And homegrown systems, and you see a lot of innovation in the ag space. Um, growers take a ton of pride in knowing their own land and having a leg up maybe on their competition and how to do a certain operation better. Um, so, so that I think that culture is already there in agriculture. And so when you, when you come to the table with something that's transformational for them, um, they're, they're really excited about it though. 
in the past, I think this isn't um, exclusive to agriculture, you know, they've seen a lot of tech that sounds great, you know, it's going to answer their problems, but at the end of the day, it, it really doesn't. Or, you know, we got, we used to get feedback about the data side of our business, how we can provide these insights um, coming off of our sensors and predictive analytics that's super cool to talk about, really promising. But for a grower who's worried about literally the changing weather of tomorrow and how that's going to affect their yields for the rest of the year, um, there's more skepticism. In is this technology really going to help me for this growing season or is this a nice to have? And they're busy people, so they don't want to waste their time. And so I think that that is something and I love working with types of people like that because it's brass tacks. If you go out and you show them how technology and we do, you know, we show up with our machines, we automate their tasks and then they're sold. <laughs> they're ready. They said, well, how can we get 10 more of these things on my farm? Um, they're ready to adopt it. They're very, very quick adopters, but they need to see the value. It needs to make sense financially for them as well. I well, that, that makes that. a lot of sense. Um, yeah. I, I'm, we're uh, looking forward to seeing how, how it all turns out. Um, that is it for us today. We are out of time. Um, thank you so much to Aubrey and Jody for this great conversation. And of course, uh, my sister, thanks to all of you out there on the internet for tuning into our virtual Wired HQ. And you can see the full lineup at wired.com slash HQ. And from all of us at Wired, I hope you have a good and healthy day and that we'll see you back in person sometime soon. Let's take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll have our weekly recommendations. All right, Ariane, since you've been <clears throat> driving this show, uh, what's your recommendation this week? Well, um, my recommendation <laughs> is a uh, something I just bought that I'm really enjoying, and this is kind of nerdy, um, but we have forced air in my apartment here, and it's been really cold where I live in Washington, D.C., so we've had the heat up really high, and I get really dried out, and I'm constantly convinced I have COVID. It's really awful. So I bought myself a little personal humidifier. It's from Homedics, and it's called the Total Comfort Rechargeable Personal Ultrasonic Humidifier. So that's <laughs> best. And it like spits out little bits of, of uh, you know, water. And it's just really delightful. And it's keeping me nice and hydrated in these terrible cold months. That is an extremely Gadget Lab recommendation. And I, I just, I love it. I respect it. How much was I usually, it? Oh, I think it was $19.99. Perfect. Somewhere around there. Maybe $25. Even perfecter. You know what? It's priceless. It is priceless. <laughs> Thank you for that recommendation. We'll link to it in the show notes. Mike, what's your recommendation this week? Uh, I'm going to recommend a Substack newsletter. It's a, it's a free newsletter that you can donate to. It is called The Signal, and it's written by a guy named David Katznelson. 
David spends a lot of time surfing uh, some of the more obscure corners of the internet and comes up with all sorts of cultural gems. Uh, he gives you articles to read, photographs to look at, painters to learn about, music to listen to, free movies to watch. It's a lot of fun because every time I open it, I learn something. And how often can you say that about a newsletter these days? <laughs> because there's so many of them. But yeah, I really like it. Um, I would I would recommend it to anybody who uh, is really into, you know, not necessarily counterculture stuff, but just cultural stuff that is a little bit outside the mainstream. So yeah, The Signal from David Katz Nelson. I also have a Substack recommendation this week. No. Yes. We're both recommending newsletters. This really is like peak newsletter right now. At this moment on Gadget Lab. I admit, though, that I saw you were recommending a Substack, and I was going back and forth between a few different things. The Substack I would like to recommend is called Sweater Weather by Brandon Taylor. And um, I pay for it, but I can't tell you off the top of my head how much a subscription is. But whatever it is, it's worth it. You should subscribe. Taylor describes his Substack as a series of essays about literature, culture, and so many feelings. And I think he just writes really fluidly and compellingly about everything from Succession, the HBO show, to contemporary black horror, to Freud and psychology, to our often very delicate and anxiety-inducing relationships um, to the internet. And um, I think, I just love his reading. Whenever I start one of his essays, I just, I have to finish it. I, I It's it's so good. Um, and so I highly recommend subscribing to Sweater Weather. Nice. Does it only uh, come out in uh, the autumn and the winter? That's right. Only only in the cold weather months. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, that's, that is not true. Uh, at least not, not that I know. All right. That's our show for this week. Thanks again to Ariane for joining us. It's been great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. And thanks for hosting that interview at Wired HQ during CES this year. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes or feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We do love reading those. This show is produced by the excellent Boone Ashworth, who really does drive the show every week. Have a great day. We'll be back next week. Hi everyone, Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life, or why China's targeting the US dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.